Good morning, everyone. I can't tell you what a privilege it is for me to have this opportunity to speak to you this morning. I also want to say thank you to those of you who have been praying for me as I have prepared to preach this, my first sermon today. I humbly offer to you these reflections on Scripture and on my walk with God, and I trust that the Lord will speak something encouraging to you through them. And I invite you to share your thoughts, questions, or reactions to what I'm saying in the YouTube chat. I'd love to hear about what's resonating with you as we go along. This morning, as we continue in our series, Hope Springs, Real Hope for the Real World, we're going to look at a passage in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to 20. Most likely for you, the most familiar part of this passage is in verse 19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. This is a verse that looks especially nice in framed calligraphy, on day-spring greeting cards, and also makes a good Christian tattoo. I was kind of surprised at what I learned as I studied this passage in depth and put that pretty little phrase in context. Before we dig into that, though, I should let you know that this is really two short sermons. The first sermon is about the meaning of this passage. It doesn't immediately have a lot of meaning to us since we are not first century Jews steeped in the history of the Torah. So it takes a bit of work for us to understand it thoroughly. The second sermon is about my soul's response to that first sermon. Act one is information. What does this passage mean and how does it define hope? Act two is about experience. How do I experience that hope in my real life? And before I give you Acts 1 and 2, I need to tell you a story about this time I went to see a movie. Do you remember when the movie The Hobbit came out? I went to see it, and when I walked out of the theater, I was extremely angry. I wanted my money back. I sent an aggressive tweet to Peter Jackson who directed this highly disappointing film. No, I didn't do that. I've never in my life sent an aggressive tweet. But really, I was upset. Why, you ask? Well, you see, the Lord of the Rings movies followed this predictable pattern. There are three books in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, so they made them into three movies. One movie for each book. The Hobbit, the beloved prequel to The Lord of the Rings, is one book. So I was expecting them to make it into one movie. Alas, I was wrong. They made The Hobbit into three movies. When I left that movie theater, I felt cheated, like something that belonged to me had been taken. I had expected to experience the whole adventure all the way through to its happy ending in slightly under three hours. Instead... This movie ends abruptly with a scene that isn't even in Tolkien's book, with Bilbo and the dwarves not anywhere close to reaching their destination of the Lonely Mountain. Instead, as the credits rolled, I was rudely awakened to the reality that I would need to wait two years to see the happy ending to the story of Bilbo Baggins' first great adventure. Sorry, something I expected to happen in three hours would in fact not happen for another 17,520 hours. Not to mention that I would have to pay for two more movie tickets. 
So I was upset, and I wanted somebody to blame. Could I blame Peter Jackson? Or Cineplex? Or my boyfriend, who is now my husband, who watched it with me, who didn't make sure beforehand that I knew about this? None of these people were to blame, but I was upset because I had expected something to happen, and it didn't. Lewis Meads wrote that hope is a cord made of three strands: imagination, desire, and belief. I had imagined the way I would enjoy watching this book come to life on the screen, and the way I would feel excitement and comfort and a sense of closure. At the end of the movie, I desired to feel that way, and my desire was enough to motivate me to pay for a ticket. I believed that the film reel would play all the way to its end, and that no unusual interruption would happen while I was in the movie theater, and that would derail this process of me sitting there in the dark, watching a familiar story unfold before my eyes with spectacular special effects and beautiful surround sound. Imagination. Desire and belief. What I imagined, desired, and believed—these were pretty reasonable ex- expectations. I mean, it wasn't outlandish. It's not like I expected Gollum himself to actually slink into the theater and perform for me his part of the story. That would be hoping for something entirely unreasonable. But I do have to admit. That what I imagined, desired, and believed would happen within the three-hour duration of one film. Was based on an assumption, an assumption that one Hobbit book equals one Hobbit movie, and that assumption was, unfortunately for me, incorrect. We're going to come back to this story at the end of Act Two, and now let's start with Act One. What does this passage mean, and what is the hope that anchors our souls? I invite you to grab your Bible, and I encourage you, if you have the option to hold a physical Bible in your hands right now, to do that instead of pulling it up on your phone or whatever device. Don't get me wrong; I love the Bible app, but I do believe there's something even more beautiful about the analog Bible. And if you need to hit pause right now on the stream to get your analog Bible, I'm all for it. In case you're watching this and you don't have a copy of the Bible. And you don't have the means to get one? Contact us at info@mcbc.org. We'd love to mail you one. So now that we have our Bibles, let's open them to Hebrews chapter six. It's easiest to get there from the end of the Bible. Just go to the last pages. The book of Revelation is at the end, and flip backwards a little bit. Hebrews is just before the book of James. Find your way to Hebrews chapter six. While you're looking for that, here's a bit of background about the book of Hebrews. This book of the Bible is an anonymous letter that was written to the early church. We aren't sure who wrote this letter, but based on its content, we can see that the writer had an extensive familiarity with the Old Testament and assumed the same was true of its audience. So, historians don't know the exact geographical location of the intended audience or the name of its author, but they do know that this letter was written to a Jewish audience. Hebrews. Jews, Israelites—these words are synonymous, so that's why it's called the Epistle or the Letter to the Hebrews. 
Overall, the theme of Hebrews is the contrasts and connections between the Old Testament system of worship based on the law given to Moses, which can be called the Old Covenant, and the New Covenant, which is mediated through Jesus Christ. Jewish faith is based on the Old Covenant, and Christian faith is based on the New Covenant. The writer of Hebrews, who again is anonymous, but because I'm getting tired of saying the writer of Hebrews, I'm going to give him an imaginary name. Let's call him Enoch. That's a good Jewish name. Enoch is addressing primarily an audience of Jewish Christians, meaning they were culturally and religiously Jewish, and then they believed in Christ and became Christians. But they were having some challenges with that. They were experiencing rejection and persecution for their new beliefs, and they were weary and discouraged. They probably felt unsure as to whether they should persevere in following Christ or if they should go back to their old ways. And so Pastor Enoch is writing to encourage them and to teach them about the wonderful meaning of the new covenant. So here we are now in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. Pastor Enoch has been telling them, don't give up, keep pressing on in faith. And he uses Abraham as an example. Verse 13, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. Here, Enoch is reminding these Jewish Christians of the true story of Abraham. He sums up Abraham's story in verses 13 to 15, and this is an incredibly simplified version of the story. Now remember, the original audience were people who had heard this story their entire lives. This is the story of their national, cultural, and religious identity. So Enoch knew he didn't need to go into detail for them. But that's not us, so here's a very brief summary of Abraham's life, and if you'd like to read it yourself later, it's all there in Genesis chapters 12 to 22. Long, long ago, God made a promise to an old man that he would become the father of many descendants, a great nation, and that all of the people on earth would be blessed through him. This is a remarkable promise, but even more so because Abraham was childless, 75 years old, and his wife was way past childbearing age. Abraham and his wife, Sarah, wait for their promised child, who isn't born for another 25 years. During that time of waiting, they believe God's promise, but also wonder if they need to find creative ways to make it come true. And they make some mistakes. At last, when Abraham is 100 years old, Sarah gives birth to their son, Isaac. But that's not the end of the story. Sometime later, when Isaac is a boy, God tests Abraham in one of the most difficult to understand stories in the whole Bible. God asks Abraham, to sacrifice his only son. Abraham both believes God's promise to give him many descendants and obeys God's command to sacrifice Isaac, who is his only descendant. 
Don't worry. In the end, God intervenes, and Isaac's life is spared. And in that moment, when Abraham's faith and unconditional obedience to God are proven, God speaks this oath, which we see quoted in Hebrews 6, 14. It's in Genesis 22, 16 to 18. I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. God made a promise to Abraham years ago. And then in this moment, he reiterates the promise and swears an oath on top of it. He didn't need to swear an oath, since he always keeps his word. But he did it to show us how special this promise is. Verse 18 of Hebrews 6 says this, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, those two things are his promise and his oath to keep that promise. We who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. And what is the hope set before us that greatly encourages us? It's in verses 19 to 20. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. There is something so certain and sure that when you put your hope in it, your soul will have an anchor that will keep you safe and secure in the unpredictable storms of the ocean of this life. And what is it? It's an image of an anchor being dropped not into the bottom of the sea, but into the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. That is the Holy of Holies. Hmm, that's kind of weird. Now remember, the original audience was so familiar with the Old Testament system of worship that Pastor Enoch didn't need to say anything more for all this to make sense to them. But let me try to explain a bit about the tabernacle. The Old Testament system of worship included several barriers to God's holy presence. Sacrifices and priests were needed, and the presence of God was housed in the tabernacle, which later became the temple. Because holiness and sin are incompatible, anything sinful is utterly destroyed in the presence of pure holiness. It was necessary for God's holy presence to be behind closed doors, And there were ways to come gradually closer, but the barriers were very clear. There was the outer court, then the holy place, and then the holy of holies where God's presence was manifest. And only the high priest could enter with fear and trembling behind this curtain once a year to bring a sacrifice on behalf of the people. A helpful way to think about this is that it's kind of like going to the concert of a superstar performer. Let's say you got tickets to see Beyonce, and you tell your friends, I'm going to go see Beyonce on Friday night. 
your friends know that you're not actually going to meet Beyonce. You're not going to just walk in through the outer doors of the stadium entrance and immediately see Beyonce standing there in front of you. No, there are all sorts of barriers to keep you from her accessing her personal presence as she glams up in her dressing room backstage. But during the concert, you get to experience the glory of her presence as she performs on the stage. And there is a cost to being in Beyonce's presence. If you want to get closer, the tickets cost more. It's not because Beyonce's being mean. It's because she's really good at what she does. So that's kind of like the way that Old Testament worshipers experienced God and related to him. And once a year, the high priest got a backstage pass and went behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies. Now let's read verses 19 to 20 again. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever. Picture this. There is a rope. One end is tied to you, and the other to an anchor. Jesus, Christ, through his finished work of salvation that he accomplished when he was crucified, buried, and resurrected, picks up that anchor and walks behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies and weighs anchor before the throne of God. The hope that anchors your soul is that your access to God, your connection to him, is now firm and secure through Christ. When Jesus was crucified, he offered himself as the perfect sacrifice for the forgiveness of the sins of the world. In the moment when Jesus breathed his last breath on the cross, the curtain in the temple was literally torn in two from top to bottom. Welcome to the Holy of Holies. You don't deserve on your own merits to be here inside the Holy of Holies because the tickets for being this close cost way more than everything you have. But Jesus, our perfect high priest, shares his merit, his righteousness, his right to be here with you and with me. Now we are not just worshipers of God, attending his concerts and experiencing his presence in a general way, barricaded at a distance by our sinfulness. Now we can be the personal friends of a holy God, sinful but forgiven. Actually, through Jesus, we become not just the personal friends of a holy God, but his beloved sons and daughters. And Pastor Enoch was reminding these believers of all that stuff about God's promise to Abraham because they fully believed that that past promise was true. It's like he was saying to them, none of you doubt that God kept his promise to Abraham. You know, because your very existence is proof that God kept that promise. You are the living descendants of Abraham. And as much certainty as we have about the old covenant being true, we can have the same certainty about the new covenant, which is the gospel, the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. 
The gospel of Christ is itself included in God's promise to Abraham when he said, Through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. This promise was fulfilled the day that a young Jewish woman named Mary gave birth to a baby and named him Jesus. So be encouraged that God keeps his promises. If you have confessed Jesus Christ as your Savior, be encouraged by this truth of your unbreakable connection to him. And if you haven't yet, but you want to, all you need to do is receive this gift of salvation by believing that this good news is true for you. Get in touch with us if you want to talk to somebody some more about this. All right. So that was Act 1. Information. The knowledge of the gospel. Many of you have heard all of that before. Many times. You've memorized it. Let me ask you an honest question. Does that information cause you to overflow with hope right now? Does it thrill you in a deep way? Are you currently at home, jumping for joy in your sweatpants, high-fiving everyone in your household, or sending party face emojis to each other the way you would be if instead of that sermon I had just told you that COVID is over, the cure for cancer has been found, the Raptors won another championship, and every one of you has just had a million dollars transferred into your bank account. Would that news have caused you to feel like you're overflowing with hope? Throughout this series, we've come back to this verse. Romans 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So here we are now in Act 2. Act 1 answered the question, what is the hope that anchors our souls? It's the gospel. Act 2 answers the question, why doesn't that information about hope translate into an experience of hope? What keeps us from a deep, sustained, life-giving experience of that hope? This series is, after all, about real hope for the real world. Why does our Sunday hope often feel like it's barely enough to get us through Monday? And if you're not a Christian, it's likely that you've wondered why Christians aren't always that much more hopeful than anyone else. Now, that's a question with numerous answers, but in the time we have left, I'd like to share a few personal thoughts. Think of this as an exploration of those questions, but by no means an exhaustive answer. Oh, goodness. All right. I've got a glass of water here. The glass represents your soul, and the water represents hope. Let's say you're a believer in the gospel, a follower of Christ. There is water in your glass. There is hope in your soul. Now, imagine that I'm actually going to pour more water in here. I didn't want to really do it because I didn't want to make a big mess. But imagine, okay? You pray and read the Bible and serve and go to small group, and the water is pouring in. 
You sing, great is thy faithfulness. You listen to sermons and read books and try to do good things and make good choices. And you set your mind on things above. And you're dumping all this good hope in there. How come the glass isn't overflowing? Well, it's because there's a leak. It might just be a tiny crack in the glass that you can't even see with your eyes. Or it might be a gaping hole. I'm going to talk about three ver- uh, sorry, four common reasons for the leakage of our hope. The first three are like little cracks in the glass. And the fourth is a gaping hole. Again, there could be many other reasons, but let's start with these three. Busyness, exhaustion, and distraction. Busyness is doing too many things. We are finite human beings with limitations. Busyness is the overspending of our finite budget of time, energy, and focus. John Mark Homer wrote, both sin and busyness have the exact same effect. They cut off our connection to God, to other people, and even to our own soul. Exhaustion is the state of unhealth that results from living without proper rest. We can be physically, emotionally, or mentally exhausted, and often we are all three. Distraction, hey, over here, eyes and ears on me. (laughs) Distraction is the interruption of our focus. It is the division of our full attention into smaller, scattered, less effective parts. In general, we are too exhausted and overwhelmed by the daily demands of life to experience the hope of Christ in a deep and sustained way. I know that's what my life looks like unless I intentionally plan for the opposite. COVID has certainly caused a lot of us to slow down, And maybe some of you are more concerned with boredom than busyness. But for some, COVID has only made these things worse. I have observed that Christians can fall especially hard into these traps because of our over-enthusiastic application of verses like Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Do I believe this verse is true? Yes, but don't we too often apply it as if it says, I can do all things, all at once, with no rest or proper intake of food and water. All things through Christ who strengthens me. We are limited human beings loved by a limitless God. As seriously as we take God's call to do great things in his power, we must take equally seriously his call to live in rhythms of rest. Here are three practical ways to address the hope leakage and plug up those cracks in the glass due to busyness, exhaustion, and distraction. Number one, take care of yourself. A car with an empty fuel tank isn't a defective car, it's just got no fuel in it. Most of us take better better care of our cars than of our own bodies, and that's pretty messed up. Take care of yourself. Number two, live 
in God's rhythms of rest. The Sabbath is a gift to us, whether you apply it as one day of rest every seven days or in some other form. The principle is that rest is a spiritual discipline. The rest of God is what heals us from the destructive forces of busyness, exhaustion, and distraction. Number three, discern your priorities. Discern with God what are the most important things he has for you to invest yourself in, in this season of life. Know his priorities for you. And if needed, say no to other things so you can say yes to the most important things. If you want to learn more about these kinds of topics, and especially if this next leakage I'm about to talk about resonates with you, I highly recommend the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality and Emotionally Healthy Woman courses that are starting this week. You'll learn things that will transform your emotional health and that will transform your life and your walk with God. So those are the three little cracks that our hope drains out of. And the fourth thing is the gaping hole. It's pain. Pain is anything that hurts. Physical pain, emotional pain, mental pain, relational pain, spiritual pain. Fear, worry, anger, shame, jealousy, grief, all of these things come from our responses to pain or our attempts to avoid the potential of pain. Side note, for those of you who have been watching WandaVision on Disney+, Plus, anybody, anybody? I find it interesting that the show is really about one of the characters' incredibly powerful desire to avoid pain. The hope is pouring into the glass, but our experience of pain feels so much more tangible than our experience of hope. And because of pain, the hope is not overflowing. Hope says, God makes good promises and he keeps them. Pain says, God makes good promises, but it's looking like he doesn't always keep them. Several years ago, I remember listening to a playlist while I was driving, and the song Oceans by Hillsong came on. And I'd heard that song many times before and even led it here in worship with you. But in that moment, when I heard the line, Where feet may fail and fear surrounds me, You've never failed and you won't start now. I felt a wave of anger and disappointment, and I had to stop the car and cry. I cried because I honestly felt like God had failed me. A few years into marriage and my career in music and ministry, I felt that my life didn't at all look the way I had hoped it would by now. Obstacles and disappointments were all around, and health challenges, my own and those of my loved ones, were redefining my daily life 
and putting significant limitations on what I could imagine for my future. In addition to that, I was struggling to recover from two separate experiences in my work that involved what I now know is harassment. And one of these experiences also included months of emotional and psychological abuse. And these experiences occurred in the context of Christian ministry. This harassment was subtle, it wasn't obvious, and it actually took me a long time to even realize that lines had been crossed. That was part of the pain. I felt so hurt and scared and ashamed, but I wasn't even sure there was any real offense that had been committed against me. But in both situations, I had to speak these words to the man in a position of trust and power over me. Do not touch me. I left one of my first jobs in ministry because I didn't feel safe. For years, these experiences did significant damage to my ability to trust my Heavenly Father and to trust the men He invites me to work with. Now, I need to say that these things happened before my time here on staff at MCBC. In fact, this has been a place of healing for me, as God has provided authentic examples of godly and respectful men who I am so grateful to work with. But why hadn't my Heavenly Father protected me from all that pain? It seemed like God wasn't very good at keeping His promises. He had failed me. My whole life I had loved and served God. I had diligently studied the Bible and memorized many of its promises. I had followed his call to do ministry. And yet, here I was, devastated by pain. Physical, emotional, mental, relational, and spiritual pain had punched a giant hole in the glass. And all the water had run out. Have you ever felt that way? Maybe even this morning, as we sang the words, you're never going to let me down, over and over. A part of you felt conflicted about those lyrics. That moment, me crying in my car, actually has a lot in common with that silly story I told you at the beginning about the first Hobbit movie. Let me explain and try to tie all of this together now. Since that time when I was crying in my car, God has done a lot of healing in my heart. He has clarified to me that his promises are all true, and he is faithful to keep them all. But I had an incorrect assumption about them. And this assumption allowed pain to drain all the hope out of my soul. We can think about the promises of God in two broad categories, circumstantial promises and covenant promises. 
circumstantial promises are generally the things that concern most of our prayers. Promises for healing of illnesses, blessing our families, protection and safety, financial provision, success in our work for him. These kinds of things. God's word does say he will protect us from harm, heal all of our diseases, and preserve our lives. By the way, I should point out that some of the things we view as promises in this category are actually not promises. They are principles, good advice for us to follow that lead us into God's best for our lives. But God didn't intend them as promises or guarantees. For example, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is grown, he will not depart from it. Proverbs 22.6 That is a principle, but not a promise. In general, we take the circumstantial promises to mean that since we love God and genuinely want to honor him, he will bless our plans and things will go the way we hope they will. The covenant promises are much bigger in scope and are really about the cosmic story of redemption, the redemption of the world. God's covenant promise to Abraham, which he fulfilled and extended to us through the new covenant, is about the redemption of humankind through Christ. All that stuff about the anchor in the Holy of Holies. He promises us that our lives have purpose and significance, that he loves us and has a personal relationship with us, and that our final destination is the home we have always longed for. The circumstantial promises are about God giving us the good things that he can do for us. The covenant promises are about God giving us himself. In relation to pain, circumstantial promises are about the removal of our pain. Covenant promises are about the redemption of our pain. Pain removal versus pain redemption. Now, watch this. If we understand the full meaning of the covenant promise, then it gives context and fulfillment to the circumstantial promises. This gives meaning and substance to this, not the other way around. Remember how upset I was at the end of the first Hobbit movie? I felt cheated, deceived even. I thought I had been promised the happy ending within the duration of one movie. When in fact, the happy ending was at the end of the third movie, not to be released in theaters for another two years. I read in a parenting book that it's helpful not to use the word no with your child all the time. You want to save that word no for when you really need it so that it will mean more. There are many situations where a good alternative to saying no is actually to say yes later. For example, your child asks, can I have a cookie? Instead of saying no, you can say yes later, not now. Maybe you set the time to be a few hours or a day later And that, yes, later, saved you from all the drama that would have happened if you had to say no. 
2 Corinthians 1 verse 20 says, All the promises of God are yes in Christ. Let's think again about these circumstantial promises. Seeing them in the context of the bigger redemption story that we know is true because, ooh, there we go, because of the covenant promises. Does God keep all those promises in the Bible to heal illnesses, protect us from harm, remove obstacles, provide all that we need, and make everything okay? Yes. Or, yes, later. Sometimes, it's a yes now. In this lifetime, he does miraculously heal and protect, deliver, and provide for us. But sometimes, it's a yes later. And to us, that feels like a no. When the cancer wins, when the accident was fatal, when our worst nightmare comes true. But it's actually a yes later in the context of this. Revelation 21 says, God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. God promises to remove all of our pain on that day and forever after. We get partial pain removal here in this lifetime, but complete pain removal at the end of the story. When I walked out of the theater at the end of the first Hobbit movie, I was disappointed, but then I found out that there was a bigger context. This wasn't the end of the story. If it had been the end, it would be fair for me to say, whoever wrote this story is a big jerk. But none of the other people walking out of the theater were saying that. They had known all along. This was just the first movie of three. So they enjoyed the movie a lot more than I had. This is the same disappointment we feel when we anchor our hope in the circumstantial promises of God without putting them into the context of the whole story. In context, the circumstantial promises are gifts and signposts that show us the glory of God here in this broken world. But they are not 100% guaranteed in all situations in this lifetime. They are not meant to hold the weight of anchoring your soul. When we anchor our hope here and we ask God to remove the pain and he doesn't, we end up with a gaping hole in our souls. Instead, God tells us here in Hebrews chapter 6, anchor your soul in the hope of my covenant promise. The covenant promises are always a yes. Yes now, yes forever, yes here and there and everywhere. Look again closely at Romans 15, 13. 
What does it say about how we are filled to overflow with hope? May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. We are filled with hope as we trust in him. Notice that it would be different if it said, may God fill you with joy and peace as you trust in what he can do for you. No. We are filled with hope as we put our trust in who he is. If I could go back in time and talk to the me crying in my car and tell her one truth, I would give her a hug and tell her this. This is hard, but there is hope. Your God never fails. In his kingdom, redeemed pain is even more powerful than removed pain. This, here, in the covenant promises, is where we anchor the hope of our souls. This hope is firm and secure, 100% guaranteed in all situations in this lifetime and beyond. In Christ, we have an unbreakable relationship with God by grace through faith, and we can fully enjoy his presence with us in every situation. We can live as people of hope in this broken world because we have the assurance that the story is much bigger and better than it appears. So let's be filled to overflow with hope as we trust in the finished work of Christ, our high priest forever. He has accomplished and guaranteed the redemption of our pain. And redeemed pain is even more powerful, even more hopeful than removed pain. Would you pray with me? Living and loving God of hope, fill us with real hope as we trust in who you are. As much as we wish you would remove all the pain now, and we believe that you can do it, for you hold all the world in your hands. Teach us to trust you in your sovereignty to choose when you will remove our pain and how you will redeem our pain. Help us to see the ways that you are redeeming our pain even now in this pandemic. We thank you for welcoming us into the Holy of Holies through Christ, our high priest forever. And we want to experience the riches of living in the fullness of your good and glorious presence in our daily lives. Lead us into that and teach us to anchor the hope of our souls in your unfailing promise of redemption. We ask all this in the name of our risen Savior and friend, Jesus Christ. Amen.